All right, I'll invite you to take your Bibles and open to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one near you, so I encourage you to grab it. Matthew chapter 5. I think we all know what happens when we tell a child there's a particular line that they must not cross. You know what happens, don't you? Here's the line. Don't cross that line. And most kids want to get as close to that line that they didn't know was there, but now it's there. They want to get as close to it as they can without going over. Now, there are some kids like Owen. He's way past the line. Doesn't care. There are others who will stay on the right side of the line as long as they think nobody's watching. But as soon as there's a back turned, they're gone. But here's what most kids do. Most kids are determined that they're going to get as close to the line as they can without crossing over. Stay right on that line. And as long as they've never crossed it, guess what? They've obeyed. It's easy to pick on the kids because they're not here. But it's common for all of us, isn't it? It's human nature when it comes to lines and rules We want to live right on that line, and as long as we don't cross over it, we're okay. At least that's what we tell ourselves. And this is the kind of thinking that Jesus is dealing with in Matthew chapter 5. It's the false gospel of the scribes and Pharisees. Just don't cross the line. If you've been with us, you know we've been talking a lot about the law of God and what it means to live as the people of God. And During the time of Christ, there was this system that was put into place, the system of lines that had been drawn and parameters that had been set, and everyone knew where the lines were. In the Gospels, we have the scribes and the Pharisees, these religious teachers who, who taught the lines and who professed to have lived them perfectly. And the system they taught was pretty straightforward. If you stay on the right side of the line, if you keep the law, then you're righteous. And if you break the law, then you're not righteous. If you keep the law, you're right with God. If you don't keep the law, you're not right with God. And that's the way it went. Lines were drawn and everything was black and white. But here's where it gets confusing. What's confusing is that the lines that were drawn, that it's obvious I'm pushing back against a little bit, they were based on the law of God. So how do we reconcile that? What we recognize is the problem wasn't the law of God. But the problem is the way it was being defined and the way it was being used. It it missed the true intention of God. God didn't give us the law so that we could make ourselves righteous. The law was never meant to truly bring someone to a relationship with God. But that's the way it was being used. This is how you obtain righteousness. So the the system of the scribe, it was this outward acts. Do this, don't do that, and you will be right with God. Don't cross the line. If you've been with us, then you know that the Sermon on the Mount, this is Jesus describing for us what it looks like to live as the people of God. And it's different than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Not because Jesus rejected the law of God. Three weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus upholds the law of God. 
But Jesus is helping us see that true righteousness, a heart that's truly right before God, is something that goes beyond just staying on the right side of the line. It's bigger than that. It's deeper than that. In fact, what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 20, he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm trying not to repeat everything we spent like the past three weeks on, but this foundation is so important. As the people of God, the way we think about the law is important. The way we think about righteousness is important. Because we should be thinking about it completely different than the scribes and the Pharisees. We don't do away with the law, but we recognize the law doesn't have the same intention that they thought it had. And that true righteousness is a matter of the heart. True righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, but it's different in every way from what they called righteousness. It's different. That's what we're trying to unpack. The section of the Sermon on the Mount that we're in, Jesus is showing us a contrast. A contrast between the outward false righteousness of the Pharisees and what it looks like to truly live as the people of God. Let me just say this at the front end because I don't, I, we can't miss this. So hear, hear this. What we're going to see in this passage is not Jesus, Jesus telling us how to become right with God. Rather, he's telling us what it looks like for a person who's been changed by God to live. That's an important distinction we don't want to miss. As we go to this passage, you're going to see, perhaps, rules and law and, and know this. God does not tell us, if you live this way, you're right with me. But if you're mine, if I have changed your heart, you will live this way. Guess what? If you are God's, your righteousness will exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Maybe not in amount, but certainly in type, in quality. Because it comes from a different place. The one big point Jesus is making is that true righteousness comes from the heart. It's deeper and richer than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And to make that point, he gives us six illustrations. What a teacher. True righteousness is different than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Let me give you six illustrations. And and today we're just looking at the first of those illustrations where Jesus is contrasting what they taught with what truly flows out of a person who belongs to God. So that's where we are. Illustration one of six in which Jesus is helping us see what true righteousness looks like. Okay? So Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read for us starting in verse 21 down to verse 26. Hear the word of God. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser 
while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put into prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So we start this morning talking about lines and boundaries. But here's a question. This is another important distinction before we go too far. Is Jesus simply moving the lines to a different place? I've told you, they draw these lines. And if we're just reading this passage in the next five examples, this could be an easy assessment to make. The line used to be here. But now the lines here don't cross the line. This is important. Jesus didn't come to simply draw new lines. He's helping us see that all along, God has always cared about our hearts. And he's forming a people with hearts like his. He's making it clear the religious leaders had missed, they'd ignored the heart of the lawgiver and settled for lines. As a result... They developed the system and the standard that was all external, but through which they were never made right with God. So we get this example, verse 21. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. We spent last week on this, but we, we, we've got to understand this. What's going on here, Jesus is not pushing back against the Old Testament. In fact, I would suggest here and in the next five examples, he's not even quoting the Old Testament. Isn't that the sixth commandment? It is. I mentioned last week, and if you look back in your Bibles, just look back to chapter 4 for a second. We've got Jesus being tempted by Satan. And there in chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus says, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. He's quoting the scriptures, and this is what he says. It is written. Look down at verse 7. Jesus said to him again, It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He's quoting the scriptures. Verse 10. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus consistently, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, when he's quoting the Scripture, he introduces it this way, it is written. We get something different in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, verse 21 and verse 27, 31, 33. You have heard it said. He's quoting people who quoted the Old Testament. And the point he's making is, they taught you about these lines. They taught you about these parameters. But the way they applied them, they didn't understand the law of God. You have heard it said. It's referring to the way the scribes and the Pharisees taught the law of God. Pharisees said, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. They're quoting the Old Testament, missing the heart of the lawgiver. They drew the line at murder. without consideration of the heart. In their teaching, they stopped short of the real standard of God. They held up the commands, 
holding to the letter of the law, but missing the heart of God in the full extent of what he calls his people to. Now, let me just say this. I don't think you're probably going here, but just, just know Jesus is not minimizing the sixth commandment. That's a good line, right? It's a God-given line. What Jesus is saying, to just hold that and say, don't do that and don't cross that line, that misses what God's actually all about. If anything, Jesus is raising the stake. He's not taking issue with the commands of God. The point is that God called us to more than not killing each other. The standard of God is higher than don't murder. It's bigger. The scribes and the Pharisees drew a line. So let me try to under, help you understand what, what's going on here. The Pharisees drew a line and said, don't murder. If you murder, you'll face judgment. On the other hand, if you don't kill someone, then you've kept the law. And you're righteous. And there were others, but in this particular instance, this is what righteousness looks like. Don't murder. Jesus says, no. For the people of God, your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. The law is clear. You shall not murder. But to stop there misses the heart of God. Because just because you stop short of killing someone doesn't mean you have a pure heart. In fact, Jesus says, we all become guilty before God when anger arrives. Not only when someone's life is taken. Here's a bit of a side note before we talk more about that. Do you notice Jesus says, but I say to you, and I want you to consider the authority that Jesus is claiming for himself here. Lots of people like to say, you know, Jesus never really claimed he was God, never really claimed authority. No, Jesus shows up, and the scribes and the Pharisees, these aren't some fringe group. These are the leaders of the established religion standing on the tradition of generations and generations, and they had learned and taught and lived by this, these lines and these parameters. Jesus says up and says, that's great. Um, here's what I say. Unbelievable claim of authority here coming from Christ. He says, I know what you've heard. I know what you've been taught. You've heard it said, if you don't murder, you've kept the law. I'm telling you, God calls his people to more than that. If you've ever wondered why the scribes and the Pharisees hated Jesus, this is why. He's setting himself up as an authority as the one who can rightly interpret the law of God. The he says, the religious establishment has told you this, but now I tell you this. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So we see the contrast. If you think you're righteous before God because you've never killed someone, you don't understand God's standard. God's standard is love your brother as yourself. To be sinfully angry with another person, that comes from the same place in your heart that murder does. Different degrees? Absolutely. Same root? Yes. Same guilt before God? Yeah. That's why John, one of the disciples of Jesus, who heard this teaching, he wrote later in his epistle, 
we know, here's how we know that we've passed from death into life. Here's how we know that God has changed us. Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. What we see is that John understood the teaching of Christ, that God cares about the heart, and that anger and murder have the same source. In both cases, we're allowing our hearts to be in opposition to another person, which is a violation of the standard of God. Yeah, Christian, your righteousness should exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And then Jesus gives some, some, there's some examples. Christ wants us to see what's going on at the heart level and, and what it looks like. Verse 22 again. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. That's the first one. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So three descriptions, three scenarios. And I'd say they're all illustrating the same thing. They're all showing violations of God's standard that come from the same place in our hearts as murder. The first one's more general, being angry with another person, to oppose another person with anger. But in this first one, and, and, and catch this, in this first one, it's not even coming out. He's not talking about that, anything that's, that's come out of our mouths or even a weird look on our face yet. He's just talking about the position of our hearts. You know what that feels like, don't you? Anger not yet expressed, but very real. To have a heart that's stewing and brooding and simmering. And you never say a word. You never fire off that angry tweet. But it's there. Here's what Jesus says. That's the same kind of heart sin as murder. Before God, we are held accountable. Which does not mean that murder doesn't have serious consequences. But Jesus wants us to see that the, the line is not just don't kill someone. God's calling his people to care for their hearts. This is where murder begins. It starts with the heart of anger. We read in James chapter 4, James asks a great question. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Good question. Ask your kids, what started the fight? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? What started the fight? It started right here. He goes on, you desire... You want something, but you don't get it, so you murder. You covet, you don't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Ask your kids, where did the fight start? What's well, because of that? No, it's right here. Every time, it starts here. James is making clear what Jesus says, murder comes from a heart that is unsatisfied, that is angry. Matthew says in, or excuse me, Jesus says in Matthew 15, out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander. 
It's a matter of the heart. God is concerned about the heart. He says, you've drawn the line here. I'm telling you, if you're angry, then he gives another example. He's a good teacher. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. You can say, I wasn't really angry. I just said something, <laughs> right? Now, now here, the ESV uses the word insult, which isn't the way I remembered the verse. And so I went back and looked. Uh, the King James, the New King James, the NIV, it's one of those verses that just stands out in those translations because it says something like this. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Raka? That doesn't sound like English. It's not. It's Aramaic. That's the language that Jesus probably spoke. The New Testament's written in Greek, but when they wrote the Greek New Testament, they didn't translate the word. They just put the word that Jesus said. Raka was a, it was an insult. We use words like fool or maybe idiot. It points to a lack of intelligence, but not just someone who lacks information. To say raka, that's, that's meant to cut. Christ wants us to see the nature of our hearts. The same position that would insult another person, the same heart that would stir in anger, is the same kind of heart that would kill. Again, James brings a, a sobering reminder along the same lines. James chapter 3. Consider this. From the same mouth, he's just pointing out a reality. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things not, oh man, these things ought not to be so. Shouldn't happen. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, brothers, bear olives? Can a grape vine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Blessing and cursing should not both come out of our mouths. It's inconsistent. It's a matter of the heart. Jesus gives a third example. Verse 22. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Some overlap between this one and the, and the last one. It's another example of an insult. This one probably pushes a little further to, to like verbal abuse. This is using words to try and tear someone down. So see the connection. Whether we're killing someone with a weapon or killing someone in our hearts or killing someone with our words. In every instance, the root is the same. Jesus wants us to know you may never take someone's life, but that does not mean you're righteous before God. As the people of God, we see that God's standard is deeper and wider than the scribes and Pharisees were ever willing to admit. Which is not to say, if you're already angry, you might as well kill them. <laughs> That's not the point. The point is that the righteousness of God produces in his people a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so we have this reality. We have all sinned. We are all murderers. And we all deserve the judgment of God. 
we've seen the first half, murder, anger, insults. But there was another half, wasn't there? Those who murder will be liable to judgment. The person who insults will be liable to the council. The person who calls someone a fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Some have suggested that there's a progression here. I think they're all synonymous. In every case, we violated God's standard. In every case, we're guilty. In every case, we deserve judgment. And so, while the scribes and Pharisees had drawn the line in one place and thought they were meeting God's standard, Jesus makes it clear, you've missed the standard. What we're seeing here is that on our own, every one of us is guilty before God. Some would suggest that Christ's point in this whole section is simply to say, you can't meet God's standard. I think that's only, that is a point. It's not the point. But we should recognize as we look at this, we haven't met God's standard. We're all guilty before God. I don't know that any of us in this room have murdered. I've learned not to make assumptions. But we all know what it's like to be sinfully angry. We've all said things with the hopes of hurting another person. And what we see in verse like 22 is, there's judgment. When Jesus said something like, you will be liable to the hell of fire, that should wake us up. That should cause us to listen. Here's good news. God knew we would not meet his standard. God knew we would never be perfect, and that's why he sent Christ. Christ kept the law of God perfectly. And not just the letter, but the intent. And because he did, he was able to die as a perfect sacrifice so that it if you confess your sins and trust him, you can be forgiven. And then the Bible says that God sees you as righteous because of Christ. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that you can't boast. Salvation is not because you didn't cross the line. Salvation comes when we trust God and the righteousness of Christ is granted to us. However, Ephesians 2 goes on and says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, and so I would want you to hear this, Christian. You aren't saved because you didn't get angry. But those who are Christ, those who have been saved by him, should be a people who are striving to care for their hearts, trying to live by this standard. So how do we do that? Jesus is a good teacher. He gives us two examples, two helps here. He knows that we are inclined to anger, insult, and murder. But he wants us to respond differently. He wants us to be a people who long for restoration and for reconciliation. Look at verse 23. Do you want to, would you say, I don't ever want to kill someone? Everybody says, do this. Okay. Here's how you prevent that. Okay. 
If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. So Jesus is giving us a scenario. He wants us to to recognize the necessity or the importance of reconciliation. He wants us to see God cares about your heart. So you could say, I came to church instead of going to kill that guy. God's probably pleased, right? He says, no, if, if, you, if, if you have problems with your brother, go fix that first. This is the scenario. A person's going to the temple to, to make an offering, to offer a sacrifice. And by the way, that's pleasing to God. It was an act of obedience, It's a good thing for those who are faithful to God to come to church. And in their case, go offer sacrifices at the temple. But this is exactly why what Jesus says carries so much weight. Because the illustration isn't, if you're at work, leave work. No, no. if you're doing something that's holy and good and right, but you're at odds with your brother, Go settle that. If you go to worship and show your faithfulness to God, but remember or realize your heart's not right with your brother, it's important in that moment. It's more important in that moment than sacrifice. Jesus isn't minimizing sacrifice. He's showing the importance of reconciliation. This is how much Jesus cares about the heart. He says, leave your gift Before the altar, go first, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. There are things that should be central. There are priorities. And I should also mention this, that the longer we wait for reconciliation, there's consequences. One consequence is that our fellowship with God is broken. Second, we're leaving ourselves open to more temptation. In Ephesians 4, we're told, be angry and don't sin. Now, this is a different kind of anger. It's it's telling us there there is a kind of anger that comes without sin, a righteous anger. But even then, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Even if your anger is righteous, don't keep it. Give no opportunity to the devil. The reality is when we let things smolder and sit, there's more opportunity for sin. I appreciated this note from another pastor. He said, animosity is a time bomb. We don't know when it'll go off. We must deal with it quickly before the consequences of our bitterness get completely out of control. Most human relationships could have been preserved if there had been communication and action at the right time. Jesus says that the right time is as soon as we are conscious of the enmity with our brother. So here's the first example. Reconciliation has to be a priority. So much so that it could even pull us away from really important things. Here's what I want to say. Here's a side note. You can just open your parentheses here and I'll close them in a second. I've, I've heard people take this verse and do things like this. I know I should go to church, but I have sin in my heart. I have a relationship that's not right, so I can't go to worship. 
but at the same time with no intention of dealing with the sin. I'm just not going to go because I don't want to be a hypocrite. Jesus says, don't go to the altar if you have odd. That's not what he says. He says, go be reconciled to your brother. So I would say, if this is you, I can't go because I haven't, then come. Because God uses our time in situations like this to give us the grace and the courage that we need to go and do what we're supposed to do. Small distinction. But here's the real point. Sin is serious. Your heart is important. And you shouldn't put off making things right with your brother and sister. It is as important as offerings and sacrifice. So he wants us to see the necessity of reconciliation. And then he gives us another scenario. Verse 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you be put into prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Here's the scenario. Someone owes someone money, okay? And so that person is going to take them to court to get what is theirs. Jesus says that that's you, if you owe someone, and they're taking you to court, fix it before you get there. Because if you get there, guess what? Now you're before the judge, and the judge could hand you to the jailer, and then you're in prison, and your debt's never going to get paid. Let me tell you what's not going on here. This isn't a parable about settling things out of court. It's not a statement about avoiding legal action. The point is, judgment's coming for everyone who avoids their sin. Does that make sense? You're on your way. You're going to be held accountable. Make it right now. Don't go stand before the judge. There's judgment there. And yet we all have these things outstanding, don't we? I'll fix that tomorrow. I'll fight that sin tomorrow. I'll reconcile with that brother tomorrow. Jesus says, no, do it now. Don't wait. It will only get worse. We should not be a people who are comfortable living with unresolved issues in our relationships. We should feel a sense of urgency. I will not let this go unresolved. It's a call to be serious about our sin. It's a reminder that one day we'll all stand before God. There is a judge. Do you see how different this way of thinking is than the thinking of the scribes and the Pharisees? God says, you shall not murder. But the call for holiness goes way beyond that. As the people of God, we should hunger and thirst for righteousness which means we should not be content to live with anger in our hearts, even if no one else can see it. And we aren't, we shouldn't be comfortable letting words of anger come out and stab others. If we're at odds with someone, we should desire reconciliation, and we should pursue it. Paul says, if it's possible, as far as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. God's desire is that we would be a people who pursue peace and that we would go to great lengths to make relationships right. It's hard, isn't it? Sometimes we have been sinned against in unbelievable ways. 
sometimes that sin wasn't once, but over and over and over you've been sinned against. And if we're not careful, we can feel justified in our anger. And we can decide that no one deserves our mercy, not because of what I've been through. They deserve my wrath. And if you're there today, friend, I want you to hear this. You have sinned against God in unbelievable ways. And your sin wasn't once, but continual. God hated your sin and he was justified in his anger. You deserve death, but he made a way for you to live. You did not deserve his mercy, but he went to unbelievable lengths to offer you reconciliation. And this is the gospel. It's the good news of Christ, and it's a picture of the lawgiver. God says, despite your sin, and despite what you deserve, all who come in repentance and faith will be forgiven. All who confess their sins and trust in God will be reconciled to him. And if this is something you've never thought about, what it means to be right with God, to avoid punishment from God, if this is new to you, I, I, I want to talk to you more about this. God says, you've offended me in every way, but Christ came to die so that you can be forgiven. The Sermon on the Mount is a reminder of God's standard, and while it's something we should pursue, we must know that we'll never be made perfect by it. As those who can't keep the law, we deserve his anger, but he showed us mercy. We deserve to be cut off, but he brings us close. We deserve death, but he gives us life. Praise God for his mercy. And the scriptures say that his kindness should lead you to repentance. So if you've experienced that, Consider your heart. One final thing. As those who have received mercy, we should want others to know that they too can receive mercy. Hear this. You have neighbors and friends who believe the same thing that the scribes and Pharisees taught. A lot of people around you believe that as long as they don't murder, they can enter the kingdom of God. Right? Because we have this, this list of the big things. And as long as I don't do the big things, then I'm probably right with God. And so many people, you know, are banking on that. They've drawn their lines, and as long as they don't cross the line, they believe they're okay. It's our responsibility to tell them they've already crossed the line. It's our responsibility to tell them that their heart of anger has condemned them. It's our responsibility to tell them they are not good enough. None of us are. It's also our privilege to tell them God is rich in mercy and that all who turn to him will be saved. The law condemns, but the Spirit of God gives life. So let's be people who live God's way and proclaim God's mercy. Let's pray together.